I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Jacob Glazier. Dr. Glazier has a PhD in psychology, consciousness, and society from the University of West Georgia. His research tends towards a transdisciplinary approach via theoretical and philosophical models and includes subjects like critical theory, embodiment, and desire, as well as their relation to praxis and clinical practice. He provides therapy services online for better help and its associated sites as a licensed professional counselor. His work has been published in academic journals, including Psychoanalysis, Culture and Society, Subjectivity, Mortality, Critical Horizons, Rhizomes, and the Journal for Cultural Research. And his forthcoming book is entitled Arts of Subjectivity, A New Animism for the Post-Media Era. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And so, um, is uh, Jacob Glazier. Uh, just you know, by way of a brief introduction, I uh, have recently, or actually in a week, I'm going to have my um, a, a, my new book published. It's called Arts of Subjectivity. It's a new animism for the post media era. And so. To a large extent, um, this project is, I mean, years in the making <laughs> in terms of uh, taking my graduate PhD training from such a uh, kind of intersectional place um, where I was uh, fortunate enough to go to school at the University of West Georgia. And um, there, you know, they have what, what they call the three pillars of psychology that they train us in. And so one of those is kind of the core pillar that this program arose out of, which is humanistic psychology. And then two supplemental pillars are transpersonal psychology and critical psychology. And um, actually one of my my great friends and cohort members, Dr. Bashara, uh, who also went to the University of West Georgia, recently had um, a book on... um, uh, post-colonialism and psychoanalysis come out. And um, so, you know, I 
you know, I wonder as we kind of go through today, and if if, if it, any of the listeners are familiar with Dr. Bashar's work, you know, I think there are some similarities uh, between what I'm trying to do and what he's trying to do. Uh, so, yeah, so so my new book, uh, Arts of Subjectivity, um, it is grounded, um, I suppose, in two theorists that come out of one, for sure, coming out of psychoanalysis, Felix Guattari, um, famously Lacan and Lausanne. And then the other um, is very well known in post-structuralism or discourse theory, which is Michel Foucault. And so those two are, are my kind of key theoretical interlocutors um, for this project um, that um, I try and, and, and take what Foucault calls well, originally Plato called uh, the craft of life. And Foucault kind of picks up on this and develops, um, it goes, he calls it differently depending on, you know, the early, middle to late Foucault, the one that you're, you're kind of um, reading or talking about, but he calls it either technologies of the self or an arts of existence. And I like the latter term probably gets at more of what I'm trying to do. Um, and so I basically take, you know, his, his kind of excavation of this tradition of Western self-cultivation, uh, Western self-cultivation coming out of, for example, the, the Baroque philosopher Montaigne, um, you know, writes on how to cultivate the self, different practices, or what Foucault calls an ascesis taking that from Greek literature. So an ascesis is a kind of disciplined training of the self. Um, and so, um, so I take, I take this kind of key insight um, that Foucault draws out of the history of Western philosophy and I try and update it, uh, one could say, um, using Felix Guattari and more specifically his understanding of what he calls the post-media era. And so, you know, I, to put this in more colloquial language, um, I want to look at, or I, I tried to look at, the way that subjectivity, first of all, what is subjectivity? Because that word is historical, as is with every other concept, and that hasn't been around that long. Um, and so what is, this, what is subjectivity? What is the self? what is the subject. So Lacan uh, famously, you know, developed this notion of the subject. Um, and how are those things different? How are those three concepts different? And what's more, is it even possible to talk about subjectivity in the kind of mobilized, dispersed, in network, networked uh, kind of splintered way that we come to the world now, um, how we're interfaced with different machines, different gadgets, different discourses. Is it appropriate or is it helpful, useful, or even ethical to talk about subjectivity as such? Um, and so I try and tackle um, those different problematics in a way that um, honors Foucault's sense of what he calls subjectivation. And so in the, you know, in the 
post-structuralist literature, you there's a pretty well-known or hard and fast distinction between what's called subjection versus subjectivation. And so subjection, typically Judith Butler does a good job of kind of maintaining this distinction, but subject, subjection is how are we as subjects or uh, as a subjectivity, how are we kind of homogenized, policed, commodified? How are we created perhaps from the outside world, right? Um, or, you know, we want to talk about this in terms of Althusser, how are we interpolated in certain kinds of ways? Um, subjectivation, on the other hand, um, Foucault, I think uh, this is where you're, he's trying to develop what this arts of existence. Put differently, how can we creatively kind of free ourselves from these fetters or shackles that are placed on us? By, by various discourses or forms of power. And so, um, yeah, so that's what, that's what I try and develop, this notion of subjectivation or arts of existence and um, how I can bring that into this kind of fevered post-truth world that we live in that is really wrought with paranoia, with regressive formations of of, you know, how we can't trust institutions anymore. Um, and I really want to do that in a way that doesn't instigate what, you know, thinkers like Jordan Peterson or Steven Pinker or Richard Dawkins are trying to do and revive enlightenment thoughts or values. And I think, you know, unfortunately, I think that's a regressive move. Um, you know, I think with you know, Trump, at least, coming into office and this kind of post-truth phenomenon being kind of solidified in that, in his administration, and not only that, but through, you know, popular media, um, I think it's a wrong move, and it's reactionary move, to return to this kind of enlightenment thought. And so I try and take and, and push post-structuralism and the key insights of post-structuralism, and I try and I suppose, in a way, reground it in a kind of realism, and that realism is a form of what is known in the literature as neo-animism, and com coming out notably of the works of like uh, Isabella Stangers, Bruno Latour, out of science studies, really. Donna Haraway is another another good good person to point to, but not only that, um, Guattari. Um, you know, throughout, especially his late work, called for a kind of um, re reinvigoration of an animistic cosmology. And so, um, yeah, so that's, in a way, that's kind of my, my project and, and my research program. And this book, I think, is, you know, co you know coming out of my dissertation, um, this book is, in a way you know, the start of, you know, trying to make that kind of intervention in the literature. And not only in the literature, but, you know, in the everyday lives of, 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 of people, my students, my clients, and so on. Yeah, I love it. And I want to make sure that the title is clear for everyone, Arts of Subjectivity, A New Animism for the Post-Media Era. It's so rich. 
Yeah. So what Thank does this you. new animism look like? Sure. Um, so one way to um, get at get at this this issue of what 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 is animism, and so I think that historically and anthropologically, you know, animism was uh, pejoratively used to describe indigenous peoples or tribal traditions. It wasn't a, a good thing per se, because um, you know it's these individuals um, didn't have things that Western Enlightenment thought espoused, things like rationality, things like technological progress, so on and so forth, or rights, for example. You know, the rights discourse of neoliberalism is also contentious um, on, on this account. Um, and so, you know, with this kind of, um, I suppose, resurgence of animism like in, in science studies with Isabel Stangers and her two tomes of work on cosmopolitics, these massive books on cosmopolitics, um, you know, there's this um, sense of trying to, if we want to use um, Max Weber's famous word, to um, re-enchant the world. Or put differently, that, you know, our state of affairs is such that the world has become disenchanted. And so um, I follow that thread a bit. And while I'm not quite in that camp of trying to re-enchant the world, um, one way to say it would be to kind of um, hijack Bruno Latour's famous phrase um, that we have never been postmodern and to parse it such that we have really never been disenchanted. Um, and that this new animism that I think I try and espouse um, tries to make that claim that this notion that rationality, science, all of these things are sort of, if we want to talk about this in psychoanalytic language, they're symptoms of what Donna Haraway calls this Cthulhu scene or these Cthulhu Chthonic kind of undercurrent creatures that we may liken to, you know, the libidinal riven unconscious, for example, that are in a certain sense subdued by scientism and by a certain form of technology, but nonetheless, they're there. You know, they're kind of underneath the, the sheen gloss or the surface of, of what um, in semiotics, these kind of normalizing semiologies that kind of shroud this more monstrous um, sensibility. Um, Graham, Graham Har I'm sorry, Graham Harmon talks about this in his book on Lovecraft. Uh, he calls it weird realism, I think. Um, and so, you know, there's a sense in which the world is weirder than we think it is. And, you know, this enlightenment need to order beings and to develop a specific teleology or progression that's based on rationality, based on science, and so on and so forth, um, really cannot acknowledge this weirdness, to put it differently. Just axiomatically, it just doesn't, it doesn't even, you know, notice that, that this weirdness is taking place. And I think psychoanalysis, you know, in the clinic or even theoretically, there's certainly a place to recognize 
how this kind of strange, chthonic weirdness manifests itself. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like, yeah, they called it the uncanny, but I feel like, um, I mean, I want to say every patient, but or everyone else in, but definitely 99%. Everyone seems to feel like, you know, it's hard for them to articulate something because they feel weird or they feel crazy or they feel... You know, like other people will think so that they're that they're weird, but like lit- literally, this happens to everyone. And I just wanted to tell people, like, it's you're not weird. Life is weird. This is weird. We're mm-hmm. <laughs> we're like we're on the earth in, in outer space. We don't know what's going on. It's a strange experience. You know, can we all cut ourselves a little bit of a break with that? We don't have to know everything that's going on exactly. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, it's interesting. I just got done teaching abnormal psychology this last term. And, it, you know, you know, even to revisit in a kind of Deridian spirit to ask these basic questions of like, what is abnormal? Right. You know, Derrida often proceeds in his essays by posing a series of questions and then trying to answer them while he goes throughout his writing. But, you know, I was just struck that my students have, you know, been so indoctrinated. And, you know, I think that's the right word to use. I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I, I feel strongly and I believe in that kind of the power that ideology has um, in order to, you know, again, uh, uh, you to use terms we used previously, this mode of subjection uh, that these students have undergone and that that they've developed a sense of what is abnormal, what's not, what's, you know, what's normal. And so, you know, I worked throughout the class to try and help them, you know, get outside of that very Western psychiatric DSM kind of paradigm. And um, it's challenging. And, you know, I think that as a, you know, as a, as a educator, it's interesting or even, you know, clinically, the, the kind of resistance that you get from students, um, I think, speaks to the power that media and, you know, perhaps the overarching, you know, hegemonic paradigm of the West has. And if, if we're to take animism seriously in constructing the world. Right. And so you know, literally constructing the way that things are being put together and one's relationship to specific beings. Um, So it's not, ideology isn't just on the order of knowledge, right? This is a world-building phenomenon that I think, you know, the post-structuralists were onto. And I think I want to bring that, those key insights from, from Lacan, from Derrida, from Foucault, and I, and and say that, no, that, you know, we're not just at the level of the signifier. While language is extremely important, um, you know, there's a whole kind of intertwined, networked, and ontological uh, effects that are happening. Um, And so, you know, I think a a naive reading of post-structuralism or post-modernism would be to say, well, it's all language, it's all language games, right? It's all, you know, discourse or rhetoric or, you know, how you position yourself in discourse. Well, yes, that's true and that's important, but at the same time, you know, these are connected to a kind of realism that 
um, you know, the you know, for example, at the Lacanian Clinic is any indication. Um, discourse produces a whole host of symptomatic effects in the analyzan. Um, like you pointed out, uncanniness, anxiety, maybe um, things like that. Yeah, all sorts of symptoms and hysterical symptoms. When you were talking about that, it was reminding me of like this idea of the hysteric, which is like, you know, just speaking more with your body, which is totally natural. <laughs> um, but like the more that you put these kind of rational boxes and like on onto someone or like try to nail them down into position and like keep them in place, the more the hysteric like acts out, you know. Um, which mm-hmm. is like historically been the woman, but it can be anyone. It's just like people don't like people don't like being nailed into place. Right, right, exactly. And I think that um, you know, I think um, you know to bring up the gendered nature of hysteria. You know, I mean, certainly there's a critique of Lacan in terms of you know him invoking that image of the hyster- the woman, right? Because that is a a, it's a medical term that's rooted in psychiatry, and and like you rightfully just got done um, suggesting, is that it is a gendered term, um, and so I think um, to connect this back to this kind of reactionary shift in uh, academia in terms of revisiting the Enlightenment, I think we mu- we that brings with it certain. Um, forms of power that have to do with things like sexism, homophobia, um, racism, um, phallocentrism, things like that. And so I think that, you know, we have to be, I think, you know, as um, members of minorities or as activists or as people that want to advocate for others, we have to be really, I think, skeptical of this return to the Enlightenment. And um, not only that, but I think we need to to see the proponents of this return to the Enlightenment and to see, um, you know, what in critical theory is called, called their positionality. Right. So are, are they are they women? Are they men? Are they white? Are they, you know, have a different ethnicity? You know, where where do they come from geographically? So on and so forth. Um you know, and I, I think, you know, it's interesting that, you know, as I was finishing the book, um, one of the, um, I suppose you could say, um, what do you, uh, things that I was disappointed about was that I rely, I feel like, and this is, you know, when, when I move into my future scholarship, I, you know, I want to expand in this way, but I, I felt like I, I, I didn't, I used the uh, canonical literature too much. And so, I, you know, I, I, while I do bring in kind of a decolonial perspective, right, in, ter- in forms of critique, you know, I think that, you know, the academy at least doesn't do a good enough job at teaching other thinkers from different cultures. And so, you know, suffice it to say, you know, the book is situated in a very specific Western tradition, even though there's certain forms of criticality in there, um, you know, I, I just... You know, I haven't been trained enough in, in, you know, philosophies or thinking from, for example, the Middle East or China or India or things like that. And so, um, 
Yeah, so I, I think, you know, I am I'm critical of of the Western tradition um, and the kind of, you know, power effects that go into sustaining that tradition. And, you know, not only that, but, you know, why is it that in the universities, um, you know, we still are struggling to find alternative sources from from various cultures around the world? You know, and why aren't we being taught these things? You know, what does that say about higher education? Yep, that it's upholding a specific discourse. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> it's it seems like it's not supposed to be doing that, but that seems to be what it's doing. <laughs> yes. 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 I we could ask ourselves, you know, what is that? discourse you know why has it been sustained for so long and you know and i think i mean this is it's a complicated issue um you know i always return to one of my 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 early loves of philosophy um came to me when i was studying philosophy in my undergraduate program um and i came across the work of martin heidegger and you know i still secretly today can, might consider myself a Heideggerian in some ways. Um, but, you know, I think his um, understanding of our, our, our relation to technology and the way that our certain epoch, or Foucault might call it an episteme, um, the way that our relation to um Technology as a way of revealing is what Heidegger says, and it either dims down certain aspects of being or it makes other aspects brighter. And, you know, I think we are so embrangled in that kind of way of revealing of what Heidegger calls the standing reserve. Um, so, like, the way that we approach technology is to... to um, have resource extraction more or less so it's a form of um you know marx would call it a, a form of maybe commodification um but i think you know i think and i speak to that a little bit in my book um using uh the the metaphor of kitsch it's like daniel tiffany who's a literary theorist and critic does a really good job i think of using the object of kitsch you know, like little plastic, you know, toys or objects you can find at any shopping center and grounds it conceptually and theoretically uh, such that um, the way that we have commodified being is through this kind of approach to like surface glossy nature of it. And so we to put it differently, covered over this um, darker aspect of being. And, um, you know, we must use, he goes on to articulate a theory of what he calls dark speech. So the riddle is a way that we can access these kinds of hidden, hidden forces that our kind of relation to technology have, has remained, has covered over, um, this kind of languaging of the riddle or even like a rebus um, would be one way to access this kind of latent power. Um, 
Yeah, and and so, you know, I think, you know, to put it plainly, you know, our way of living right now, I think, is really superficial. Um, you know, the way that we approach the world, we isolate ourselves from nature. Um, you know, we are constantly on our phone, constantly on our computer. And so I think we're, you know, it's like we, you know, Lacan might say we've been duped by the discourse, <laughs> you know, to, to really almost meld with these gadgets and these discourses. And all the while, there's this kind of strangeness, weirdness, uncanniness out there that we aren't being, you know, aren't paying attention to. And, you know, clinically, certainly this kind of being duped um, ha leads to all kinds of symptoms that we see in our current society. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was just thinking. Like, when you don't pay attention to it, it's just going to come back, like, in full force. It's going to get yeah. our attention. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, yeah. So, and I think, you know, globally, you know, we could talk about that kind of return of the repressed. Um, I think we're seeing signs of that globally. You know, all you have to do is look at the ecological uh, status of the planet. And I think, you know, one might say that's this kind of re return of the repressed, of this kind of capitalist machine that is, um, you know, Deleuze and Guattari talk about it as the mechanosphere, um, the way that this kind of globalization monster has ensnared, ensnared the earth. And... Um, the symptoms that we see around the planet, of perhaps certainly ecological destruction, maybe war, um, cultural conflict, uh, so on and so forth. These are symptoms of the way that we're living. And, you know, they're coming out of this kind of this this weird realism that I'm trying to talk about in this book. Yeah, and like when the whole election, when 2016 happened, we'll say, um, you know, people were so like taken aback and shocked. My friend Chiron Armand, who's a shamanic practitioner, he's like, what did everyone think was going to happen? Like, how did everyone think this was going to go? You come over here, you steal people's land, you steal other people from their lands and make them slaves. Things is going to end up all right, you know? <laughs> and I was like fair you know it's the, it's the only thing that like that shifted my perspective on it made me understand like yes it was inevitable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely and you know i think i'm interested in like the talk of reparations in the united states political rhetoric um uh you know which is an interesting gesture um to kind of heal these these wounds that you know aren't healed um you know and i you know, again, I hate to return to this, 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 these group of scholars like Peterson and Pinker that are trying to return to enlightenment thought because I just see that as so dangerous. Um, and, that, and, you know, the, the, the devastation that some of these values that have been handed over to us through enlightenment thought, um, ha we haven't dealt with, with that. Um, the exclusion of minorities, you know, a kind of naive notion of Kantian cosmopolitan Cosmopolitics or the Cosmopolitan, which I try and rework that in my book. I try and use Stangers and, and Latour to kind of, or even Sazendi, um, to rework this notion of what is cosmopolitics? What is, what is the cosmopolitan citizen, right? Um, and how we can be inclusive 
of of cultures rather than you you know homogenizing um, their values and replacing them with things like rationality, with things like science, with things like progress. Um, uh, yeah, and so I think that um, part of the work um, that I'm trying to do again is, um, for example, like Lisan, this Creole uh, post-colonial thinker. I use his work on uh, the poetics of relation. And he talks about, um, you know, not a return to indigeneity, not a return to kind of uh, native being, but rather what he calls and the post-situationists call a detournement of the kind of subjecting forces that have been foisted upon these, you know, indigenous peoples. And um, the detournement in Guatarias is... Um, very um, enthusiastic about this kind of uh, tactic, one could say, political tactic. It's it's this kind of hijacking um, or turning back of symbols or rhetoric or even objects that have been used to kind of enslave or subject. And so that's a kind of key strategy that I think that you know, people that feel ostracized from society um, can kind of do to take back some of their power and perhaps delve into this more creative form of self-fashioning, which Foucault calls subjectivation. Yeah, I was just thinking yesterday, what would Foucault think of all of this? (laughs) Because he he was pre-digital age, you know? Like, what would he think of the digital age? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I just, when you're saying that, you know, I recall Deleuze's kind of um, supplement to what Foucault called society, um, I'm sorry, disciplinary societies. Right, where we're structured by institutions like the prison, the school, and the hospital, and so on. And Deleuze, you know, develops this into the digital age in a certain manner, and what he calls societies of control. And so, you know, everything is encoded, right? I think an, an interesting way to think about these things is through, like, cryptology. So cryptology you know, is the study of codes and how things are encrypted. And so, you know, Deleuze famously says that we are no longer individuals, we have become dividuals. And so we're dispersed and, you know, we're required. um, It doesn't matter what institution we're in because institutions don't exist in a certain way of, of, of thinking. You know, we're, we're so spread out and we're always connected that, um, you know, you have to have these passwords or these codes to get access to certain information. And it is a, an information-based system. And that's one of the kind of ethical issues that I'm trying to point out in my book is the, in, the ideological thrust that discourse has and at, in, well, I suppose to put it plainly, enslaving people. Um, and the way that we have become an information-based society and the danger that that, is, that, that you know, possesses. And, and so, you know, I think this kind of reinvigoration of a, of a new animism 
you know, I think tries to, to cut those different semiologies and those different uh, networks of meaning that we've been we've been so plugged into and frankly addicted to in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you more about your school program that you mentioned in the beginning because it just sounds so interesting. What an interesting program mm -hmm. and like a, a theoretical kind of perspective behind having these kind of different branches of psychology. How did you find your way into this? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I feel so thankful for my training because you're right. I think it's a, it's an extremely unique program. Um, so the way I kind of found myself into this is that I um, have been studying uh, philosophy as an undergraduate, actually philosophy and psychology. So after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I went right into clinical work, uh, training uh, to become a, a mental health counselor. And so I, I did that. And of course, you know, um, I knew that eventually I would want to go on and get my PhD. And so I was looking at, you know, a lot of my training as a mental health counselor comes out of Rogerian therapy or person-centered therapy, right? And not only that, but humanistic counseling and humanistic psychology. And so when I was doing my search for different programs, um, you know, there's not a lot of humanistic programs out there. And um, you know, perhaps like uh, Saybrook might be one, or Duquesne, which is humanistic, phenomenological. Duquesne and West Georgia have a have a strong relationship with each other. Um, and so, lo and behold, I I, I found West Georgia, um, and I went down there um, to interview. And you know, I I had a little interest in transpersonal psychology. Which, for those that don't know, transpersonal psychology is kind of the study of mystical or spiritual experiences. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't, even though I had training in philosophy, like a neat, you know, um, uh, in critical thinking and so on and so forth, I didn't really have a good sense of what critical psychology was. And so that's something I picked up while going through the program. And, um, you know, um, thankfully coming across um, others that are interested in, in the powerful critical tools of psychoanalysis. My dissertation advisor is a Foucauldian, and so that was um, a great resource to have. Um, and then also the work of uh, Deleuze and Guattari and their critique of capital. And, and not only that, their critique of psychoanalysis insofar as um, it remains um, too edible. Um, it edipalizes people in certain ways. And so I think their understanding of the unconscious as a kind of um, factory with these notions of like desiring production and gets us away from uh, Lacan, you know, obviously Lacan is controversial or is on the fence um, with regards to this critique. But, you know, I think traditional psychoanalysis tends to edipalize people and you know, doesn't do a good enough job of helping individuals kind of cleave themselves or individuate themselves from their nuclear family or from their kind of main family. Um, yeah, and not only that, uh, but to return to our discussion of animism um, and even even the um, what I mentioned to you at the beginning of our conversation, the um, podcast that you did on the occult and psychoanalysis. 
Um, I was also very fortunate to work as a graduate research assistant under Dr. Christine Simmons-Moore. And she is the only parapsychologist that is, um, holds a tenure-track faculty position in the United States. And so I was able to train under a parapsychologist, um, which is unbelievable um, because that just, you know, is, is extremely rare. Parapsychology is the study of the paranormal or um, psi. Um, so things like telepathy, clairvoyance, poltergeist, um, ESP, the survival question, things like that. And so, um, you know, that not while that I don't explicitly talk about those things in my book, um, nonetheless, you know, I think an astute reader uh, might find that my kind of overarching theoretical scheme um, allows for certain strange things like that to happen uh, or permit. Another way to say that is it permits those beings into the fold of understanding. And um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, certainly West Georgia is in a very um, unique position to offer this kind of intersectionality uh, in training and rigorous training um, that I think, you know, I think is really rare. Um, and I think, I've, you know, like I said, I think I've, I've, I know that, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I have benefited, benefited so greatly from, from that intersectionality. Where are you located uh, now? Yes. Yeah, so I'm still in Georgia. Um, still in uh, Atlanta. Um, West, you know, West Georgia, right? So the, the university's in, in uh, Carrollton. And so I haven't, I haven't left the area. Um, yeah, so right now, I mean, I'm teaching part-time at, uh, as an adjunct uh, professor for New York University Online, um, which is amazing experience and um, teaching graduate students in the counseling program and then i'm also teaching uh, part-time down here at a university uh, which is a really also a very has a very unique program that's focused on positive psychology but it also it's a chiropractic school called life university and they have a really um kind of unique psychology program for undergraduate students that um uh you know, has its uh, roots in positive psychology. And so I'm teaching there part-time as well. Um, apart from that, um, I'm excited for my book to come out next week. <laughs> and, um, I'm yeah, excited I don't know. to read I, your book. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited for you to hear your feedback. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope, you know, in terms of like future scholarship, you know, I, I want to kind of, things we've talked about today, you know, I want to try and develop them more. Um, and so, um, you know, I have under review, I shouldn't say what journal this is, but under review right now, I have a, a journal article um, that I think is, is super cool. It's such a cool essay. And I really hope that, you know, I get good feedback on it, but it's, a, it's, it's on hermetics. And so Abraham and Torek, I don't know if you're familiar with their psychoanalysts, um, that were in that whole kind of post-structuralist group, and they developed um, this kind of new, I don't know if you want to call it new form of psychoanalysis, but they, they shifted the, the kind of metaphorics that traditional psychoanalysis uses, and they invoke things like, um, uh, like 
I don't even know, like uh, like ghouls or the phantom. So the phantom is a famous uh, understanding of how we can transmit trauma through generations. Um, and again, they're Abraham and Torek. They, they were good friends with Jacques Derrida. And so, you know, all that's to say is that, as you can see through kind of those images of, of ghouls, goblins, the phantom, and so on and so forth, you know, I'm trying to, to, to take this, this notion of strangeness or uncanniness that can be found in this form of animism that I've tried to develop in my book and, you know, apply it. Um, in this case, you know, for example, apply it in psychoanalysis. And so it'll be interesting to see what kind of um, feedback I get. I think that's really important, too, because it is kind of one of these, like, last frontiers where, like, in general, academics understand, like, the problems of colonization and the racism that's come from it and, like, the problems with classism and unfair distribution of resources. But if you talk about, like, folk beliefs or, like, you know, these magical ideas, it's still, like, oh, you can't go there, you know? It's just, like, right. it's still so, like, othered. And it's like, exactly. but you guys can't keep doing that. It's the same problem. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think, you know, in a certain, um, I don't know, like schizoanalytic spirit, I think that, you know, in, in Deleuze and Guattari have an, an, have an excellent, in A Thousand Plateaus, they talk about the allegiance between the sorcerer and the wolf and the demon. And I think that these kind of metaphors or figures can be really subversive to kind of normal ways of doing things or normative semiologies. And I think that they're, they're threatening, right? Like they're not just as the beings as such, but just invoking these kind of metaphors, I think can be threatening to certain individuals. And, you know, perhaps we can, you know, with, with gloves on our hands, we can help them loosen up the kind of you know, normal paradigm that they've been indoctrinated into. Yeah, and it really is indoctrination. And and I also think, you know, I moved out of the U.S. last year and uh, moved to Sweden. And then having kind of an outside perspective as opposed to living in it my whole life, um, I can just see more and more. It's It seriously is indoctrination. And, you know, like I went to like a Catholic school, Episcopalian school when I was little and like, you know, we had to go to church every morning after we pledged the flag and just like America's whole belief that like, like we were actually taught like that the United States is like the result of all of civilization, like all of civilization has led up to this like progress that is like the United States and that it was our destiny to take that land and it's our God-given right and we were like, you know, it's like this, it's, it's really, it's really indoctrination and there's a lot of propaganda there that I think living there, you just you're just so used to it that you don't even realize how much it's not like that other places. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, the lesson from psychoanalysis is that even if you're not paying attention to it explicitly, you're still soaking it in. Yeah, and you know, sub subconsciously. Yeah, and it's everywhere. Like even I just got my first Swedish laptop instead of my American laptop. And like, you know, the keyboard is different. But then I noticed things like, you know, the accents that you need to use, like, like for people's names that are, you know, maybe Latin names or French names or these kinds of things. We don't have those on American keyboards. And then that makes us stay more like isolated in our like Americanism and like not able to like express 
these things that are in other cultures as readily. Like even things like that, like your keyboard on your laptop. You know, it's just everywhere. And the only other thing I would say, you know, if you're worried, if your biggest criticism of your work is that it's too, like, founded in these, like, contemporary canon of, like, academia, then, you know, maybe yeah. that's a good jumping off point. Like, that's where you're coming from, from your education, and then that'll give you, like, this foundation to kind of then play more with it from there, you know? Right, right. Certainly, you know... I think you're right. You know, try, trying to make these con these kind of more heady concepts more practical, I think, can be really helpful and powerful. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Jacob Glazier. Dr. Glazier holds a Ph.D. in Psychology, Consciousness, and Society from the University of West Georgia. He has a Master of Science in Education in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Western Illinois University and a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and Psychology from Augustana College. Currently an adjunct professor in the Department of Positive Human Development and Social Change at Life University and an online adjunct professor in the Department of Applied Psychology at New York University Steinhardt, Dr. Glazier's research tends towards a transdisciplinary approach via theoretical and philosophical models and includes subjects like critical theory, embodiment and desire, as well as their relation to praxis and clinical practice. He provides therapy services online for better help and its associated sites as a licensed professional counselor. His work has been published in academic journals including Psychoanalysis, Culture and Society, Subjectivity, Mortality, Critical Horizons, Rhizomes, and the Journal for Cultural Research, and his forthcoming book is entitled Arts of Subjectivity, A New Animism for the Post-Media Era. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated.
Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Constellation of ideas to begin with, of whale, 
part into is a one joined by stronger more unified everybody you have with the likely been destiny of leaders satisfaction 